Welcome to the Terry and Jesse show. We got a special guest, Terry. We got a heavy hitter today. Amen. Father Chad Ripperger, welcome to the Terry and Jesse show. Thank you, Terry, and thank you, Jesse, for uh, having me. It's always good to see you guys. <laughs> I like yeah, Ditto, ditto. Yeah. Hey, Father, can you start off with a quick prayer? And we got we want to get into your last two books, ask you all kinds of questions, pick your brain, because uh, uh, that's uh, that's exactly what people want to hear the the intellectual property of Father Ripper. Mm-hmm. Can you start off with a prayer, Father? Sure. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Direct, O Lord, all our actions by Thy holy inspirations, and carry them on by Thy gracious assistance. So that every prayer and work of ours may begin from Thee and by Thee, be happy through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Virgin, most powerful. Pray, Pray for, for us. us. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, you've been you've been busy, busy, busy writing some books. <laughs> yeah, this was actually a book I had completed a little while ago, but I had circulated it among certain priests and academics just to kind of get their read on it before I made it public. And um, so uh, when the whole thing happened with Strickland, I'm like, you know, now's a good time to put this thing out. So, <laughs> Yeah, so the book is called The Limits of Papal Authority Over the Liturgy. It's your new release. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's, it's available. Uh, what's the name of the website, Father? Sentrad. What's, what's... Uh, it's called Sentrad Press. Sentrad Press. So uh, that's actually their, um, that's the one that we, that's our, our own personal book distribution. You can buy it on Amazon, but the yeah. quint, quint quality, yeah. there's two reasons. One is you don't want to get it from Amazon. Hey man, father. <laughs> the right. thing is the print quality from Amazon is not as good as the print quality that we have because we go through a, we haven't printed from a separate corporation that good. does actually a good job. So it's a better quality book coming from us. Great. Right. And, and you you also wrote a book years ago because yes. I'm going to ask you questions on these two topics. You wrote a book years ago called Magisterial Authority, and so That's I think right. both of, both of these books kind of play off of each other. So give us an overview of what's contained in the limits of papal authority over the liturgy. Give us a summary of that book. So basically, what I was hearing is people like Cardinal Burke and um, Bishop Athanasius Snyder saying things to the fact that the Pope doesn't have the authority to suppress the old right. And I agreed with them, but I didn't know the the principles that were involved. I mean, I kind of just intuitively know he, it seems like he couldn't really do that. So what I did is uh, I spent eight months researching, trying to find the fathers of the church, but also the popes, the councils. Yeah. The councils themselves have, have weighed in and said, no, these are the limitations. And then even after the council said things, there was uh, a further development by many of the saints um, in regard to what the popes can and cannot do in relationship to the liturgy. To kind of set the stage, I'll give you an example. When Pius XI, not 12th, and, uh, but when Pius XI was asked to insert St. Joseph into the canon, his response was, I can't do that. I'm only the pope. So this, yeah, so this kind of, when I first started reading this stuff, I'm like, well, where are they getting this? And so what I basically did is I did did all the research and I basically broke it down into a few areas. Obviously, he, the Pope does not have the authority to put something in there contrary to the divine positive law or the natural law. The natural law would be something like violating the first commandment. He doesn't have that authority, you know, so he can't require us to put some little wooden statue up on the altar and, you know, before mass and do the all hail thing. 
which I'm sure you know what that reference is to. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I love the it. second the second one is the divine positive law means that he couldn't require us to do something um, which is actually contrary to what Christ said. So Christ said to the apostles, do this in commemoration of me. So the whole the Pope would not have the authority to promulgate a mass that didn't have, say, the words of consecration. And it seems kind of like an academic uh, observation to make, but there actually was what's called the anaphora of Anna and Mari, which was actually given permission to say mass without the words of consecration, which basically means there's, in my estimation, there's no mass. So this is, but that the Pope wasn't involved in that. That was uh, actually under Benedict that happened. So then... Um, I also parsed out two things that kept kind of coming up. The first was that if something was of divine tradition, which means it meant it came from Christ, or divino apostolic tradition, that means Christ commanded them to put some the apostles to put something into the mass. And that one, uh, the the I found a reference to um, uh, to a, his, a saint who basically said that it was uh, I think it was one of the fathers said that uh, Christ commanded the apostles to insert a preface into the canon, into the Mass. So that would be an example of that. And then there's things that are of apostolic tradition. And the consistent teaching of the um, the fathers of the Church, and then also even when you read Quo Primum, which I'll get to here in just a minute, when you read the very, its discussion of these things throughout the history, it was absolutely across the board accepted theology that if something was inaugurated by the apostles, um, not even the Pope had authority to remove it or to change that particular element. He could add to it in certain circumstances, but he could not take it away. And this became the foundation for me to begin to re- that to uh, start to parse out other things that the fa- the apostolic fathers were or the the um, uh, the early church fathers were saying, which is basically that um, that the liturgy actually came out pretty fairly baked. We got this idea from modernists that you know that the liturgy was just kind of one of these things where you know that there was just a few things, and in the early church, people just made a bunch of stuff up, and then that was kind of surrounded the liturgy. And then it wasn't until time went on that eventually they started writing stuff down. But as you find out that that's actually not true, the writing the part down is true, but that's because the liturgy was handed on orally. But the, the fathers very often would say, make reference to things that were in the liturgy from the time of the apostles, and it's not that much different from what it is now. There was just an article recently, um, I don't know if it was on Maratje Chelly or what have you, but they were actually talking about that very fact, that um, that uh, that there were, that from the time of the, from the time of the apostles on, there was there was liturgical development, but it wasn't extensive if everybody was making it out to be, and that by the time, of course, you get to Gregory the Great, the thing is pretty much set in stone. But even before then, even when you start to see these in the documents, it means there was a prehistory, which meant they were around for quite some time. So apostolicity became a very important point. It meant that not the Pope didn't have the authority to change those elements but he did have the right to preserve those elements. So he didn't have right of determination, just right of preservation. And this became a distinction, which I began to see in the Father. So when you get to the time when you get to quote primum of Pius V, the document, if you read it, 
in Latin, not in English. Because if you read it in English, all the English translations I'm going to come across have been bad, except there was one that just came out recently, which might be actually pretty good, but I haven't had a chance to take a close look at it. But the language in Latin is juridic language. It's not doctrinal language. But what undergirds the um, the pious the fifth saying that no prelate and nobody can deny any priest in perpetuity from saying this, this right was precisely because, and he even mentions it because of the apostolicity of the right. This thing came from the apostles, and therefore nobody can actually deny him the right to say it. And that became the foundation for my observations in the ninth chapter that the Pope can't actually, doesn't have the authority to suppress the old right in my own uh, he can restrict it under certain circumstances or certain things he could do, but he doesn't have the right to actually suppress it. And so this is, um, so I think that when um, Pius V was making those statements, he wasn't making those statements in a doctrinal sense. He was making them in a juridic sense, which were then based on the fact that uh, the um, it, it was accepted theology and everybody knew that if something came from the time of the apostles, that not even the Pope had the authority over it. So that meant that uh, there was a, a very much a restriction on what the Pope could and couldn't do. And then the last thing I kind of talk about is uh, the principle of longevity. So if something's been in the liturgy for 200 years or more, then it's generally conceded that that's the positive will of God that that element be in the liturgy. And it's precisely the 200-year mark that Pius V put as the cutoff because there was a proliferation of the rites during the medieval age, and a lot of these had incorporated um, elements into the liturgy that were not could not demonstrate their apostolicity. And so what he did is he set it at 200 years because it, it was at that point that the rites could actually still demonstrate that they had these, uh, these elements of apostolicity. But also just the principle of um, that if something has been in the liturgy that long, well, then this is the will of God. You can't just come along and just throw it on the scrap heap of history as uh, I think it was Benedict the Sixteenth said, or when it was Ratzinger. You can't just throw this on the scrap heap of history. The fact is, is that this thing was demonstrated the positive will of God regarding certain elements. And it was generally conceded that as a result of that, the Pope, again, had rights of preservation. It was his duty and right to preserve these elements but he didn't have the rights of determination, that is, he couldn't change them. He could actually add bits and pieces here, which we've kind of seen historically um, here and there in certain um, times, even after the time of Gregory the Great. But the, from the time of Gregory the Great until now, the liturgy was practically unchanged. So that's kind of just the overview of the book in general. Wow. Wow. We got music coming on. We're going to come back with Father Chad Ripker. Thinking about his book, The Limits of Papal Authority Over the Liturgy. I feel like I got I'm, a lot of questions. I feel I got like a lot I'm, of questions. I'm at college level right here, getting a <laughs> course, and I'm sitting down writing notes. Wow, 200 year mark. Interesting. Stay with us, family. As we always say, we're too blessed to be stressed, we're too anointed to be disappointed, and if hope was money, we'd be billionaires. You're listening to the Terry and Jesse Show on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. Father Chad Ripperger, author of several books, one of them, Magisterial Authority, also The Limits of Papal Authority Over the Liturgy. Father, you set the stage for the book. I just had a practical question because here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio, 
Bishop Strickland has multiple shows starting the first of this year for Virgin mm-hmm. Most Powerful on the radio. And I just wanted to ask, it's a legitimate question. I'm a layman. I want to know, yes or no, What can the Pope hire or fire bishops without any written notice? In other words, can, does he have this power to just say, you're done because I don't like whatever you're doing and just move on? Or is, is there a process that even the Pope has to follow? Uh, well, as I, um, as I kind of mentioned a little bit before, I'm not a canonist, so I, I don't really know exactly. I suppose this is not even a canonical question. This is really a doctrinal question. Historically, it was always understood that once a bishop was um, consecrated and then installed in a particular diocese, that he exercised certain rights there. And so the only time that you would actually remove him is if there was a a penal cause or if by mutual agreement as an administrative act, you moved him to another diocese or moved him up the chain or what have you. So that would be uh, the only time that you would actually strip him of a see. Um, Now, there is one other uh, time in which it could happen. And that is if it happened, like there has been some historical situations where the the bishop or the pope has decided to close certain dioceses um, or or just shut certain dioceses down. This is why there's certain bishops who are titular bishops. You know, they have they're they're part of a they basically are over a a defunct diocese, right? So, uh, but they they there have there's sometimes where those things kind of get where they get to the point where there's not enough Catholics or the population shifts and moves around, and so the bishop will remove uh, or the pope will uh, suppress that see and then open up another see. But even that is kind of an administrative act, and normally speaking, it should be done with um, the consent of the bishop that's there, at least. And if he, the pope still does it, does he have that authority? Well, technically speaking, he does, but it, it, it's, um, it's kind of one of those things where, yeah, he does have the authority to do it, but as a general rule, he should be observing the rights of the bishop and not be removing him from a, his diocese unless there's a penal cause. That is, either the bishop's done something that would merit his removal. Got it. Thank you. Father, I'm going to get into some liturgical questions here. Uh, so Here it comes. Put your hat on. How, okay. far, how far does does Eucharistic prayer, one, in the Novus Ordo Mass, the longer Eucharistic prayer, I think it's called the Roman, right. the Roman canon, how... Is that the original prayer? Because there's four after 1965 or after 1970 that are used in the Novus Ordo Mass. Which is the one that's the longest or the original one that was used that's consistent with the Latin Mass? Uh, well, it would be Eucharistic prayer number one. Obviously, there were some uh, minor changes like reduction of the number of, of um, signs of the cross made Um and uh, there's also a couple of liturgical gestures that are not made in the new rite, but it is in uh, substance the same as the canon of the mass under the, the old rite, which is kind of an interesting inter- thing because the uh, it's, it's when Benedict said that they were the same rite but a different but different um, different form. Right. Um, of course, the current Holy Father is not of that opinion. And what's kind of interesting is, is that what constitutes a rite is the nature of the offertory, the canon of the mass, and then the communion of the priest. So um, the canon of the mass in that particular case of the first Eucharistic prayer and the old rite were this pretty much in substance the same. Obviously, the other Eucharistic prayers are not the same, and the offertories are different. 
and the communion is different. So it's hard to argue that these were actually the same rite. So in a strange sort of way, I think that the, uh, that but Benedict should have said, in fact, I wrote an article about this some time ago, he should have just said, look, they're, they're, in, they're different liturgical rites, but they're the same canonical rite. They're still under the same Western rite, the same Latin rite, and so any priest here can say it. And then that would have solved that problem, because I think that's why he wanted to say that they were the same rite uh, um, in different forms, because he didn't want them to people to think that, um, therefore, a priest was bi-ritual if he was saying both. That makes sense. I have another quick question, and that's um, the universal language of the church, Latin. Jesse and I just right. were talking on our first show today, and we were saying how beautiful that would be when when you could be in Rome, you could be in Tokyo, Los Angeles, and have the language in Latin. Now, we have Latin masses here at our chapel every week, uh, but the point I'm trying to convey, and my question to you is, uh, the universal language of Latin, it seems that's a big unifier, and it seems that when we have the Vietnamese Mass or the Spanish Mass or cultural Masses, it seems to undermine the unity of the Church. Now, that's just my opinion. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think that's actually true. I mean, well, first of all, um, if you read the document by John the Twenty Third, Vetrum Sapientia, yeah, he, he makes that very argument, and that also not only is it a unifying um, principle in the church, but it also becomes a language. It's it's an academic language, it's a scholarly language, but it's also a liturgical language, etc. And so it becomes because it's a somewhat fixed language. It doesn't it doesn't shift around like English does. It's a much better language. But a, one of the first. Um, but right before I went to the first traditional Latin mass back in 1984, wow. uh, my my uh, roommate's father made the observation because he was uh, he was a big um, devotee of the traditional Latin mass. He said, you know, he could never understand why the church changed away from Latin, especially in an age of hypermobility, which is totally true. Great You're point. just all over the place, yeah. you know. And now it doesn't matter. It should be the type. Okay, so I wouldn't get anything out of the homily, but at least the regular mass itself would be the same regardless of wherever I went. Um, I, I mean, I think that the real reason it should be the it should be in Latin is because the sacred languages are um, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, and that's because the fathers say those are the sacred languages because the um, that was the language that was fixed to the cross, the instrument of our salvation, and so they said that's what sanctified those languages. And so those are. That's why I think it should be in um, Latin, at least for the Western Rite. Father, here's a. Okay, so we have two lungs in the Catholic Church, East and West. Yep. The Eastern Catholics pretty much have celebrated the 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 Divine Liturgy in their own languages, whether it, whether it's Chaldean or Lebanese or Syriac. So it's, it's the Eastern languages. Now in the West, when did Latin? When was Latin first offered? I mean, I, I've read uh, 4th, 5th century, right around St. Gregory the Great, or was it before that? Uh, because some people will argue, they'll say, no, the first Mass was in Aramaic before anything else. Is Number one, is that true? Uh, uh, okay, I'm going to so, burst your bubble. Okay, so when did Latin oh. come in the West? <laughs> yeah, okay, well, first, first let's, let's correct the Aramaic thing. Okay. Christ would speak with the apostles privately and also in the, in the common uh, interactions with people in Aramaic, but all religious discourse done by any Jew during that time was done in Hebrew. Ah. So this was, and so Christ, 
preaching on the mount, all those things were actually done in Hebrew. And how do we know that? It's because of the fact that um, the gospel of Matthew is referred to by the fathers as the collective sayings of Jesus in Hebrew, the collective Hebrew, Hebrew sayings of Jesus. So it was understood that all he did was collate the various um, Hebrew uh, things that Christ had said publicly, because formal discourse, and this had to do with the prophetic tradition that uh, prophets always spoke in Hebrew, and it was always done in Hebrew in the language of the Jews, uh, liturgical language, and all that stuff was also Hebrew at the time. That being said, the common opinion is that uh, as as the liturgical studies are deepening, and because originally during the 1960s and 70s, that's what you would hear, is the fact that, oh, well, you know, liturgically, Latin didn't really kind of come in until much later. It was basically Greek or whatever the language is that the people were actually speaking. But the... Uh, and that would be true. There's that's would be true in relationship to some of the um, like of the Eastern rites, you know, when they were initially uh, not inaugurated. So the general consensus is, is that Christ told four of the apostles, commanded them to inaugurate the rites. And so and none of the other apostles did. It's kind of analogous to there's only four gospels. Well, there were only four apostles that started the rites and then from that developed the 21 rites of the church that we have, unless you consider the new rite to be its own rite. So that being the case, the um, uh, historically, as the, the, the but, but so there was a lot of statements basically saying that Peter didn't write the first canon, there's no evidence that he did, and da, 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 da. but as you start to really deep jump into the fathers and do a deep dive into the fathers, what comes out over the course of time, and it's becoming more and more solidified in the research, is that the first or the the canon of the mass of the traditional Latin mass was originally written by Saint Peter? There were obviously additions because there's subsequent uh, saints that were added, but the substance of the canon of the mass was actually written by Saint Peter, and it was actually said in Latin from the beginning. And so uh, it wouldn't it doesn't necessarily mean it might not have been done in a few other languages, but it was originally written by. Peter, precisely because he was in Rome and it was written for the Romans, ironically. Well, Father, we've got two minutes before the break, but I this is a question that we hear some of the high officials in the Vatican, and this isn't to get you in trouble. I'm just, I want clarity. I want clarity. We hear them say, Pope Francis's magisterium. I mean, I'm scratching my head and saying, I thought that the Pope's job was to confirm us in our faith and to go back and be consistent with all the other popes and the teachings of the of the of Christ. So, my and hand question, down the tradition. Yeah, hand, hand down, down the tradition. tradition. Right. So, my question is: Is there a Pope Francis Magisterium? <laughs> well, okay. So the the Magisterium is a living thing. I mean, it, it and the, and the actual right to govern and to teach, which is what the Magisterium is, is passed on from generation to generation. Right. That much is very true. And so he is part of the living Magisterium. However. The magisterium is not like it's not like it's like the Biden administration or something like that or the Trump administration. His his sole purpose is to confirm the brethren, which is what Christ said. And so his he, that's why his job is to adhere to what Christ also told the apostles, teach all that I have commanded to you. So um, and that's one of the things which we can talk about maybe after the break oh, yeah. is that. That's one of the reasons for the book Magisterial Authority. I was pointing out something very specific in that book and another book in regard to the what the Pope is actually bound to. Excellent. Well, let's talk about that. One more point, too. Yep. To get the book, we need to go to what website again, Father? 
centradpress.com. Excellent. Well, let's pick that up. And folks, I also want you to be able to take this show uh, from our website, vmpr.org, and pass it on to your friends. This will go on YouTube. This will be, I would like to see this interview go viral to get people to understand the issues of limits of papal authority over the liturgy and also magisterial authority. These are two very, very important topics. And Father Chad is going to be with us, God willing. We're all here in March for the Spiritual Warfare Conference, along with Bishop Joseph Strickland and Jess Romero and Chad. And, and um, oh, gosh, we got um, Jesse. Who else do we have coming? A, a guy named Wiley E. Coyote is going to be there because yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> Father just called me that. Father, he said, that's my new name. I don't know why he called me that. but I like that title. He says, my name is Wiley E. Coyote will be there. Good. So that'll be on the 14th and 15th of March. You can register by going to vmpr.org. And you can check that out. But also, I want you to remember to get this show, this interview, out to your friends so that we can have clarity. Because right now, there's a lot of confusion in the church. And Father Chad, I just want to thank you because I keep saying this. The Holy Father is supposed to confirm us in our faith. And so when we are, Jesse and I question things like that, we're trying to explain Canon 2.12 that we're, we want clarity. So when, we're, when we see things that are ambiguous, it bothers us lay guys to say, wait a minute. I, I, can you just say yes or no to the answer to the question so that we can have clarity with charity here? And uh, I appreciate your willingness to put these books out because they are very timely. Because, again, Jess, we're living in times of ambiguity, and this is yeah. not what we need today. We need clarity. Yep, that's right. <clears throat> Let me just ask, before, uh, how Great. long before the break, Terry? Uh, uh, the break will be coming in about 30 seconds. Okay. Yeah, you're listening to the Terry and Jesse show. I'm going to ask Father, Father, just chew on this be- during the break and then respond after. I actually think there was kind of a Latin Mass going on. I'll tell you why. At Calvary, uh, oh, there were yeah. Roman soldiers. There were Roman soldiers on Calvary, and some yeah. of the Roman soldiers were actually professing their faith in Jesus, Mark 15, 39. They're actually saying prayers and professing their faith in Jesus in Latin. So, hey, I can make an argument that Latin was done at the foot of the cross. <laughs> Can't argue there with that. There you go. No, that's good. Job. We're actually over our, our time. I don't understand why we're not taking a quick break. But, what, Father, you wanted to talk when we come back from the break. Why don't you set the stage? What would you like to chat about when we come back? Uh, well, I think authority. that uh, what, uh, just, yeah, magisterial authority. I think Magisterial authority. One. Okay. We'll talk about that and much more here on the Terry and Jesse show on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I, I'm not sure why we're going to keep going because I'm, I'm looking at my clock. Oh, here it comes. We're going to break and we'll come back with Father Chad Ripperger to talk about the papal uh, magisterial uh, limits of papal authority over the liturgy and also his book called Magisterial Authority. Please pick one of his books up. It'd be good for a Christmas gift. I think you can still get it before Christmas. We'll be back with more on the Terry and Jesse show on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us, family. All right, we are back, Jesse, with Father Chad Ripperger. Let's continue, my friend. Yeah, Father wrote two books, The Limits of Papal Authority. Well, he's written a bunch of books, but the last two that we're talking about that are relevant to this topic, The Limits of Papal Authority Over the Liturgy. That one you can get from centradpress.com. It's in stock. Uh, Pick one up for Christmas. This is, for those of you serious Catholics, this is one that should be on your table. 
the, the next one, we're going to be talking about the magisterial authority. Mm-hmm. That one came out a few years ago, 2014. And I guess that one is a reprint of three articles from Christian Order, where Father addresses the nature and limits of magisterial authority. Uh, the book also contains principles in relation to judging contradictory magisterial statements, as well as how one should approach an erring magisterial member. Wow. So, Father, that one, that I, one in 2014, that's, that's very timely. Oh, you got that right. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> un- uncon- unconfused us, Father. Yeah. Why did you Break write this that? out? <laughs> yeah. Why did you write that book and give us the, the nuts and bolts of that yeah. book? Okay, so the book is actually, um, there was a book I wrote before that called The Binding Force of Tradition, and it's in there where I talk about how even the Pope is bound in the form of conscience to the tradition of the church. Mm. And so, um, and then I go into um, infallibility there and then a couple of other things in that particular book. But it's it's in the magisterial authority, and I kept putting off the stuff about dealing with what's called the theological notes. And it, the, word, the reason it's called notes is because it comes from the Latin word notare, which means to know. So there's different degrees by which we can have certitude about the things that we know about the faith. And so there are certain things that are like um, we can have absolute certitude because they're um, de fide definita. So that's one of them. That's in magisterial authority. I talk about that. Um, de fide definita. So it's of the faith and it's been defined. But there are also things that are infallible that are of the faith that have not been defined. So this is the subsequent book, which I wrote, called The Consensus of the Fathers and Theologians. It's in there where I talk about um, that if all the fathers of the church say that something pertains to the faith, and um, then they say if, if it's unanimous among the fathers, and this is what uh, Pius IX and also the church has said this for some time, then it was considered of the faith and it was considered infallible, even though it had not been defined. So then I go down through different degrees of um, infallibility, or different degrees, sorry, of theological certitude, because there's certain degrees with, see, life. so the common opinion of the theologians, for example, and by that is meant not the current theologians. That's one of the biggest mistakes people make when they used to say the common (laughs) opinion of theologians. They actually meant those are the theological schools from 1100 to 1750. So if those theologians of that time and this would include people like St. Bonaventure, St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, Cajetan, all these guys during that time frame. If they all said this pertained to the faith, then it was also of the faith. But it also, if they, if there was a common opinion of these, like, say, Robert Bellarmine held it and Thomas Aquinas held it, and there was just numerous theologians that held it, there might be a guy here or there that was a little off. He didn't necessarily hold it. But if they, if the consensus was that this was the case theologically, then the historically they considered you you had to have grave cause to deviate from the common opinion of theologians that you were bound to even to hold to that. And then there was stuff that was of lesser grade that you could actually, that were some things that were open to discussion theologically and things of that sort. So that, like, for example, the assumption of St. Joseph, even though I think, I personally think it happened, there was, you know, there's some debate and all that. Of course, my attitude is, well, where's his body? But you know how that is. Really? <laughs> yeah. But my point, and then there's all the way down to pious tradition. So these, and pious tradition is one of those things that it doesn't really bind you that much, but you should normally follow pious tradition unless there's a sufficient reason to the contrary. But all that being said, it means there was different degrees of certitude. So why did I go into that? What I kept seeing is that the current, not the just the current magisterium, but even the magisterium since Vatican II, 
there were areas where certain um, members of the magisterium were deviating from what uh, what the common opinion of theologians had been for the entire history of the church. And so I'm like, well, you can't just chuck this stuff out and just go off on your own. This is one of the reasons why I tell people, you know, that you hear from time to time, you'll hear this distinction between, oh, well, there's big T tradition and that you can't deviate from, and then there's little T tradition. And then if you actually listen to these modernists, they're basically lumping only those things which have been formally defined as big T and everything else can be dispensed with. And that distinction was is nowhere in the tradition. It, it's actually, if you look at all the discussion about it, they talk about varying degrees of certitude we have about matters that pertain to the tradition. So what I was trying to do is lay out, okay, so this is how we're supposed to, to, to we're bound by the tradition, this is the various degrees in which we have certitude, and therefore varying degrees by which we're bound to it. And then the third part is, what do we do if some guy in the magisterium goes off the rails? And as Catholics, there's a general principle, and we as Catholics instinctively act according to this principle, which is that the, the tradition binds in the uh, form of conscience. How do we know that? If you heard uh, a bishop from Germany, let's just take Germany. I'm not sure why we would say Germany, but let's just take <laughs> Some bishop from Germany yeah. came out and said that women can be ordained to the priesthood. Right. Right. As Catholics... We know from the tr the entire tradition of the church, that's what the whole document of Ordinatio Sacerdotalis of John, the, John Paul II was all about, was showing, no, this has always been the tradition of the church. So as a result of that, because it's the church, as Catholic, we just instinctively blow the guy off. We just ignore him. And so what I wanted to do is make sure that people had the principles about um, what you had to know and when so that you would know when you had to adhere to what some magisterial member said and when he didn't because and this is what we're seeing now we're seeing deviations uh i mean serious deviations um from the uh from what the church has always understood and as a result of that this gives people kind of the principles about how to kind of judge these matters Thank you for that. That really helped us. That's Father, I, uh, I was talking to Dr. Scott Hahn a few months ago, and he told me that in the church's tradition in the last 2,000 years, uh, he said that there have been two popes posthumously who have been corrected by the, the, the successor or by a council. Uh, That's correct. So is, is yeah I I didn't ask I didn't ask uh, uh, Dr. Han I needed the popes I mean we're just kind of passing by and stuff we had a little conversation but so that is true what are the circumstances a, a, a pope that? can yeah. be corrected posthumously yeah. by another pope yeah. or by a council correct yeah so yes that's correct so pope formosus was one of them and then um uh, then there was uh, uh, Honorius II who was a what's called a monothelite he believed that there was only one will in christ instead of both a human will and a divine will and so uh i believe it was formosus that was exhumed i'm not certain about the the history of it but i think it was i think it was either i think it was innocent the third exhumed his body and literally put him on trial condemned him of heresy and flagellate <laughs> his body in public i'm sorry i'm laughing <laughs> and, and didn't they so, throw him back in? I mean, go ahead. I'm listening. Yeah, they throw him yeah, back so, in. Yeah, I know. That's the other part of it. So the, yeah, so the point being is, and I might have some, some stuff mixed up there. I'm sure there's someone in your audience that actually knows the history perfectly. Yeah. But it's one of those things that, uh, but those two popes were the ones okay. that generally conceded. Uh, I think it was, um, I think it was Famosus that was actually corrected by a council. Mm. 
but it's um but anyway the point being is is that a subsequent pope or thing can pass judgment on the teachings of the pope and that's one of the reasons one of the principles there's there's uh, i'm sure you guys are coming across this there's a lot of sativic contism that's starting oh, yeah, to a lot huge yeah. yeah yeah and it's because there's two fundamental principles and then a precept that's being violated the first principle is there is no authority above the pope in this life mm. the only authority that's above the pope is god yeah. so in this life the only there's no authority not even not even the not even a council because a council has no binding force unless the pope calls it and actually confirms it mm. the say, then so there's that not all the cardinals collectively have the authority to uh over the pope so there's nobody in this life that has authority over a pope the second principle is in order to judge someone not what they say but to judge a person being guilty of heresy at least you have to have authority over that person this is a principle that saint thomas aquinas delineated and laid out in his summa theologia that you have to have authority over person to pass judgment about them so that not what they say or not what they do but those two things from that arose a principle no one judges the pope yep. right so basically what that means is is that no one can judge the current holy father of having formal being a formal heretic because Father, there's hold no that thought pope. hold that thought we're gonna hit hard break we, yeah, we want to get second. right back to that stay yep. with us family you're listening to the terry and jesse show on virgin most powerful radio welcome back to the terry and jesse show to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. Father Chad Ripperker is with us. Man, my mind is going fast, Father. I, I want you to get back to your point, but something crossed my mind when you were talking about popes that taught something that was an error. I know we can't judge. I get that. But I just want to get your take because I'm a, I'm Joe Sixpack. I, I have a very simple faith. And when I see our present Holy Father come out with Amoris Laetitia, chapter 8, regarding marriage laws, I question myself and say, does he have the authority to tell somebody that who's living in a second so-called marriage when really they're only married to their first wife, but they're in a second so-called marriage? And he's going to say, well, in these circumstances, you can still receive Holy Communion and be a good Catholic. It seems to me that that's an example of uh, overstepping his authority. Maybe I'm wrong. Tell me your thoughts. Yeah, no, I, I, I think so. I think that's one of the things that uh, many good, solid bishops have even expressed that concern to me, the fact that the Holy Father has been saying these particular things. And obviously, this is a deviation from the entire tradition of the church. And I think that's the real issue is they don't believe that the, the tradition of the church is actually normative. But here, you know, to judge the Holy, the, you're not judging whether the Holy Father has formally fallen into heresy here and the, and what you're doing. And this is, because every time I come across the state of a contest discussion, they're yeah. always fudging on one of those two principles. They either think that they're above the Pope or they actually think they have authority to pass judgment on the Pope, right. which they or can pass judgment, which they don't. And the, the historically, the only time theologians said that card, the cardinals could collectively pass a judgment on somebody who was putatively the pope is to make a declarative sentence that he was never validly elected ah. or or and so and so you're not passing judgment on the pope because he's not he's not the pope right <laughs> but once he's assumed the papacy 
we can't, there's nobody that can actually formally judge the heresy of him until you get to a subsequent pope. So only the subsequent pope can actually do it. In fact, there was a case, and I think this is one of the things that, um, you know, people, oh, well, whatever the Holy Father says is always true. Well, first of all, that was one of the things that they were concerned about at Vatican I, is that if they didn't put these conditions in there and make it very clear that people would just think the pope's always infallible when he's not. But there was a case, it was actually John the Twenty Second, who... Um, basically denied that people uh basically denied purgatory and basically denied um that there was a time that uh, between so that basically once you died you basically just went to the final judgment or there was just not that there's this big gap and that you didn't actually exist in the avum which is technically what it's called for any length of time until then and so the theologians in paris wrote him a letter and said actually you're in error there they didn't call him a heretic they just said you're in error he set up a commission to study it. They came back and said, yes, the church has always held as a purgatory. The church has always held these things. And so then he, but but he recanted, right? So um, it is possible for a pope to even fall into error um, and not be a formal heretic, because obviously the guy didn't fully understand it, because once he, once he did understand it, he changed. The point in all of this is that, um, but there has been a couple of popes that have fallen into uh to basically to heresy if uh i mean i realize that there's some de debate about that but the fact is that the fact that a that a council or that a subsequent pope judged them to have lapsed into heresy yeah. is itself good enough for me oh yeah you know? yeah yes mm. good stuff so it's well, possible for them to actually do that so when we see those things and this is why the people really need to know the tradition and then i don't mean to dominate the whole time here we but want you to but there's just one other thing. So I started writing a book on the census fidelium, and there was a particular reason why I did this, but I actually did a conference on it, which will come out here shortly. But basically, the sense of the faithful is that some of the stuff coming out of the Vatican is just not right. Exactly. right? And so I talk about um, in this conference that the census fidelium is because God infuses this supernatural faith in us. When we hear something contrary to that, our supernatural faith inclines the intellect to judge it's not true, Amen. right? And so, and or that if we hear something that pertains to the faith, we're like, yeah, that fits, that makes sense, that's true, right? So it yes. fits our. That's called the census fidei. That is the sense of faith. The census fidelium is the collective sense of the faith, right? So that if they all recognize that this is, you know, that this is something that um, is you know, that is is true. So Pius IX used it um, in the can in the Declaration of the Immaculate Conception as one of the proofs that the faithful, you know, collectively thought that she was immaculately conceived. So this is the census fidelium. And I think what's happening is the census fidelium is starting to rise up and people are starting to get a sense of stuff like this just isn't right. And this is why I'm telling people, but the gift, the infused virtue of faith needs formation and you better make sure you get the right formation and therefore you and what's that that you conform to the tradition and what the church has always taught as saint vincent Lorenz said what's been taught always everywhere and by all that has to be what people go back to to have that strong sense of faith amen father uh, saint saint paul talks several times in the new testament about hold fast to the traditions taught to you by word or letter as i read those as i reread those passages now in 2023 I think not only is 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 that going to save us, or not only is that going to bring back Protestants when Protestants understand that there's a sacred scripture and sacred tradition, but I think that's also going to be the salvation of our church. 
is when we as Catholics yeah. realize that there's a binding tradition mm. that uh, that's that's the Word of God as well, and uh, and this binding tradition it safeguards the Word of God and our understanding right. of the Word of God. And so, I, I to me, in my, I think that the sacred traditions of the church. As we go back to them little by little and people discover them, I think that's going to be the restoration of the church that we pray about. Oh, I absolutely agree. It's actually something I've thought about from even before I was a priest, that what needs to happen is the actual restoration of the tradition, not just liturgically, but um, I think even in the sense of as the primary object that people need to be studying, we deviated from it. And now we wonder why there's so many difficulties and so many problems. And this is one of the reasons I tell people, you know, I'm not I'm not making stuff up because some people accuse me of making stuff up. I, I, in fact, I've even had people say, I don't know where Ripperger got that. Yeah. And there's literally the footnote. Exactly yeah, right there. Right? So I don't know what to do with those kinds of people. But the, uh, <laughs> other than just send them to the source. But that's actually what I've been trying to do in all of the teaching that I've done is get people to go back to the tradition. Just look at all I'm doing is bringing this stuff into the into the um the modern context and i think that when the church's head clears you're going to see people doing that in spades right they're going to really be going back to the tradition researching it coming to a better knowledge of it um and it's one of those things that you can spend your entire life plumbing the depths of it and never exhaust it father chad my question to you tradition yes and i say that the modernists have undermined the word of God. We used to believe in the tradition for years. We were always taught that it was God's word, the inerrancy of Scripture, that the Bible right. is without error. And it seems the last 50 or 60 years, we've got people saying, well, the Bible says this, but you know what? Uh, science tells us that, you know, for example, homosexuality is really a legitimate thing. And we we almost like we're, we're, we're missing the point that this is God's word it's super, it's right. at the top of the food chain. Do you think that's also a big problem in the church on the question of the Bible and and the inerrancy of Scripture? Oh, absolutely. It's in fact, it's uh, it's one of those things that um, the first is is the fact that it, because it's divinely inspired, it means that God's the one that's responsible for literally every word according to Pius the Twelve. I agree. Yeah. yeah the, the second thing is is that also means that because it's come from God, not, He can neither deceive nor be deceived. So. The scriptures we know are uh, absolutely the case. The only caveat that I tell people, and this is where the Protestants I think would benefit from, is that uh, the tradition was oral at first. Even the all the content of scripture was oral at yep. first, so it's actually part of the tradition. So historically, they actually considered the uh, the scriptures to be part of the tradition. So the tra- tradition actually took precedence over the scripture in two ways. One is because it was it contained the scriptures. The other part was it also told us how the ter- scriptures were to be interpreted properly, right? And so this is, uh, and so it, you can't have this discrepancy. And I think that part of it had to do with the way the language of the way the church started talking about it. They'd say, scripture, 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 oh, and then there's tradition. Well, no, actually it's tradition and scripture is part of that. I'm not trying to demean scripture. No, it's a... But in fact, what I'm trying to do is give its legitimacy. But also, this is, and to the fact that it's divinely inspired means that, uh, and that God is the one who, that it's inerrant, um, and so, uh, but, and this is another key thing that most people are unaware of. What's that? So, the Council of Trent, they they basically said, okay, well, look at because the Protestants were all over the map, yeah. we we have to be able to point to a 
text of the Bible that we can guarantee is inerrant, right? And so but they did is, and this is why modern scripture scholars said, oh, well, they just didn't understand lineage of texts and crit- critical analysis and textual analysis, which is all complete hogwash. <laughs> the the fathers of the first of the of the Council of Trent were fully aware of how that stuff worked. What they did was though, is they did a serious research. It took some time, but they they were able to basically verify that the only scriptural text that they could guarantee its lineage from the time in which it was written by the apostles and inaugurated from the apostles and actually reached us was the Latin Vulgate. That's the only one that the lineage is, we have certitude about its lineage. Wow. Everything else, we don't. It doesn't mean those texts aren't useful and important. It just means this is the one, that, and this is one of the reasons why the church historically always pointed to that as the one that it was inerrant. Wow. But now, of course, if you're, if you're, I'll just put it to you this way. Yes. So I don't know if you heard, saw that text by Diane Montagne. Oh, yeah. She put out the text where this guy um, who was at the, a bishop who is at the um, Synod for Synodality. Yes. Made the statement that we are no longer bound by the apostolic tradition. Well, if we're no longer bound <laughs> by the apostolic tradition, then not even scripture has any meaning or exactly. bearing. Ultimately. That's amazing. Incredible. Oh. Yes, this has been an education. Father Chad, yeah. thanks for, for, for um, just educating us because most of us aren't aware of those things. And I want to remind everybody to pick up your book, The Limits of Papal Authority over the Liturgy and also the Magisterial Authority. Father, are all your other books on that website that they can get? Yes, they are. The only one that's not on that website is the one I wrote uh, called Metaphysics of Evolution, which is at the Colby Center Got website. It. Got it. Father, give, us a, give us a blessing. blessing please. Give us a blessing before we go. Okay. Benedictio Dei Omnipotentis, Patris et Fili, et Spiritus Super Vos, et Mani et Semper. Amen. Amen. Father Chad Riviger, thank you. I always ask Jesse this question before we go. Jesse, what state should we be living in, brother? Live in a state of sanctifying grace. Don't live in a state of mortal sin. Become holy or die trying. And remember, folks, are what Our Lady at Fatima said. Souls are going to hell because no one is there to pray and make sacrifices. I don't care if you're four years old or 104. You have efficacy with your prayers to God and making sacrifices for the salvation of souls. Every action is like a blank check. If Christ's name is on it, it has infinite value. Please do that, and the benefits are out of this world. May God bless you folks for your Lenten, or I should say Advent season. It's a time of penance. Offer those prayers to God for the salvation of souls. Thanks again, Father Chad Ripperger, for joining us here on the Terry and Jesse Show.